have questions about your health? A simple pill won't fix your problems. And there's so many points and opinions on the internet that a web search just leaves you more confused. So why not take the time and listen to those who know best? Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. Truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective right here and now. So let's bring it to your host, Dr. Jonathan Carp, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences. One zero seven seven the Bronx, one zero seven seven the Bronx dot com, live from the Killarney's Public House Studios. Welcome to Health Four One One. I'm Dr. Jonathan Karp. The Ryder University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, truthful health information to expand your knowledge and your perspective. The Ryder University Health Studies Institute communicates cross-disciplinary perspectives affecting health and wellness, public health, healthcare policy, and the business of healthcare. I'm in this studio today with Diamond McNellis, who is our producer, and our guest, Dr. Marius Pascal, uh, who is a PhD in philosophy. Our topic for today, we're going to be talking about medical ethics, um, which is a very, very important topic, and we're going to hear a lot of reasons why. It's very, very, it's sort of overreaching on a lot of levels of healthcare, everything from the business side of healthcare to making healthcare decisions. Um, but we want to hear a little bit, not what I have to say, but what Dr. Pascal has to say. Welcome, Dr. Pascal. Oh, thank you. It's very nice to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and... Um, how you came to be interested in, in the topic of medical, medical ethics. Absolutely. So I am a PhD in philosophy, as you said. I actually received my bachelor's degree from Ryder University, in, uh, graduated in 2010 with a bachelor's degree in philosophy, specializing in applied and professional ethics. I went on to go to SUNY Albany. I completed my doctorate in philosophy, again, applied and professional ethics in 2016. I've been here for approximately two years after they called me back to do a visiting assistantship as there was a need to do applied ethics work, to have someone teaching applied ethics. So I took over as medical ethics instructor. And so what are you teaching here on, on the Ryder campus? Right now ethics and medical ethics but in addition to the those two I also am here to teach and may be teaching and have taught in the past uh, various applied ethics business ethics philosophy of law symbolic logic logic and language okay very very cool so yes. it's very very a very you're bringing to us a very broad perspective on a, on a lot of issues related to to health and yes, the things and, involved and external to my work at Ryder, i have a visiting assistantship at tcnj i'm an adjunct at seton hall where i do medical ethics for public health majors medical ethics for nursing students rn track specific and other areas external to applied ethics and philosophy uh, modern philosophy uh, metaphysics and epistemology, or basic introduction, some ancient philosophy work. That's a uh, world philosophy. It's a fairly diverse pool. Uh, I I have the benefits of being a bit of a workaholic, I guess. Right. And and it, it seems well. like you're doing a little bit of all things philosophy. <laughs> well, let, let, let's let's try to focus a little bit here on medical ethics, which is what we want to talk about here on Health 411 today. Can you tell us a little bit about when people say medical ethics? What does that mean? When people say medical ethics, because people would sense. joke, it's like you know military intelligence. <laughs> no, that's, <laughs> that's, that's business ethics. Business <laughs> ethics is the business other ethics. one. That's the other yeah, one. A little oxymoronic. Uh, so yeah. what, I'm, I'm assuming medical ethics is not in that same ballpark. So what do people mean by medical ethics? So medical ethics, in the sense of what it actually is as a discipline, mm -hmm. is 
largely, in fact, what you opened with in the description, because it's an extraordinarily broad topic that's going to look at moral issues and as they intersect with questions in the medical industry, topics, areas of focus in the medical industry. A lot of people tend not to realize the depth of interaction that we mm -hmm. see in, in the study of medical ethics, that medical ethics really does not touch on one concentration. Medical ethics touches on access to medicine yes. and medicinal treatments, particular policies in medicine, uh, distribution of medicine, treatment methodology, treatment procedure. Yeah, absolutely. And so yeah. part of the things I want to, part of our guided conversation is going to be talking about the, like, the, the discipline of, of medical ethics versus the practice mm -hmm. of medical ethics. Mm -hmm. And I certainly mm -hmm. want to expand upon those things that you're talking about. So in your, in your, in your area, what's your sweet spot of medical ethics? The sweet spot of medical ethics. Well, I am a researcher and an instructor and a professor. So for me, the sweet spot actually occupies two specific separate areas. Okay. Uh, as an instructor, the sweet spot, do you mean in terms of technique or in terms of research or topic? Well, I'm just, I'm just, I want you to, you have a lot of stuff in your brain. I'm trying to get some of it out. Oh, let's, see what, let's see what flows. Let's it's, see where you take So it. the sweet spot as an instructor yeah. of medical ethics, as a professor of medical ethics, the sweet spot really is the ability, time, and sort of reward you get from imparting on students their uh, ability to analyze particular issues, areas that may be of interest to them, areas that are of interest to sort of the greater landscape of medical ethics. The sweet spot as an instructor is really being able to instruct students not only in historical ethical theory and the bearing that consequence-based moral theory, uh, obligation-based moral okay. theory has on specific issues, but watching them develop their own particular methodology for creating arguments to justify particular positions, uh, oh, et cetera. And yes. what was it that got you interested in this way of thinking, and what made you interested in applying sort of the theoretical thinking? approach to medicine the theoretical thinking approach well the the sort of moral theory theoretical approach mm -hmm. to medical ethics. so as I have I have uh, popularly been known to just have always been a philosopher from from very early age not mm -hmm. not in sort of the pretentious sense but in my brain has just always been very heavily analytic that's just mm -hmm. how my brain works a lot of people are just very big fans of saying you were never not going to study philosophy it was just <laughs> that was just always going to happen but in terms of how the sort of applied medical uh focus yes. came about. I while I'm very interested in the realm of philosophy, I have sort of a diverse background in philosophy. In the contemporary world, there's not really a lot of a lot of focus paid to the value of critical philosophical thinking in terms of its application to very important relevant areas. Mm -hmm. For me, medicine has always been the most interesting, uh, particularly for me. I, as you may see if we talk a little bit about my research, I have mm -hmm. someone who has always been sort of interested in morbidity and mortality, mm -hmm. uh, as obviously this plays a very significant role in the medical industry, yes. most sort of cursory sense with uh, living will with uh, right to death with dignity and you know prolonging mm -hmm. treatments etc when i was a senior at uh, Ryder university in fact as a, as a bachelor's they arranged a internship to serve on the morbidity and mortality committee at what was then the princeton teaching hospital i believe might be part of the penn medicine mm -hmm. conglomerate now mm -hmm. And working there, I really yes. just fell in love with the practice, the application, to see 
moral theory actually instituted to be applied, applied ethics really as a way to to take the valuable tools of thought and yeah, apply thinking them. and analysis yes. and apply it to the real world. Apply it in an area outside yes. of, you know, when you when you are a philosophy philosophy professor, I always joke it's, you know, people don't usually walk up to doctors and say, "Oh, you're a doctor. Let me tell you how to do your job." They look at <laughs> philosophy professors and they go, oh, "I'm going to undermine every single area of thought you have. I'm going to look at you and go, "Oh, this is why your your theory is wrong." Uh, we spend a lot of time on stereotypically abstract things people tend to think as a, as a philosophy professor people always go oh so you just sit around and talk about what the meaning of life is that's that's what you do mm-hmm. it's really not uh, and and to take the tools we learn as philosophers the critical thinking the logical argumentation the intense research skills mm-hmm. and apply them to in this case medicine but environmental concerns resource distribution business both medical and otherwise that's always been my passion to take not only the research but the methodology and apply it to areas where it can do significant amounts of progressive work okay. and, yeah and so my question is do you come from any some so one of the things philosophers do is some a lot of them have frameworks that they sort of use to sort of how they view the world and how they travel do you have a particular framework where you that, that you use to approach some of the um, issues related to all aspects of health and medicine uh, my students that have taken my ethics class will probably tell you it's decidedly not a deontological framework okay. my, uh, my my Kantian moral theory expertise tend to be a little on the cynical side. Okay. Um, I tend to like to keep an open position when it comes to this. I don't actually have a particular moral framework mm-hmm. in terms of the moral philosophical sense. I do believe in the necessity of some form of flexibility, okay. uh, that it has to be something that can strike a balance between application, broadly speaking, but a broadly applied framework that requires some sort of situational flexibility. And so the reason I ask is because I, being the product of a liberal arts background, um, it comes with good things and bad things. And I know that philosophy sometimes comes with these principled kinds of things, like one would look at rules and principles. And there also is sort of this case-based sort of way of relative looking at it. Uh, we're using the word you were flexibility yeah. to decision yeah. making. Yeah. And I think understanding that's going to be very useful as we move ahead in our discussion, as we talk about some of the specifics, but we have to take a break from this segment. We'll be right back with more healthcare talk after these brief underwriting announcements. You're listening to Health 411 on 107.7 The Bronx and 107.7 TheBronx.com. A dose of knowledge a day keeps a doctor away. Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. And back with your daily dosage is Dr. Jonathan Carr, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences. 1077 The Bronx, 1077 TheBronc.com, live from the Killarney's Public House Studios. Well, welcome back to Health 411. We're in the studio today talking about issues related to medical ethics with Dr. Marius Pascal, who is a PhD in philosophy with a specialization in medical ethics and teaches medical ethics here on the Ryder campus and other campuses. So we're going to continue our, our discussion. Um, can you give us a little bit about sort of the the cornerstone of approaching um, medical-related issues from an ethicist's sort of perspective. Uh, 
So traditionally speaking, this may very well tie into some of what we said before the break, in fact, with structurist approaches to medical ethics education. Typically, the way that you will see individuals approach a medical ethics background or a particular, let's say, issue in medical ethics, we have some form of training in historical and contemporary moral theory. So there is a sense in which we will examine conflicting or sometimes even contradictory moral theories. Uh, when I teach a course, for example, we'll do sort of a reduced version of this for the first two weeks or a week and a half where we will look at some historical theories of individual sort of virtue motivation. We might look at some consequentialist utilitarian, consequence-based, result-based reasoning. We might look at some intention-based moral reasoning, that something comes not necessarily from the result, but from the intent of what mm -hmm. one chooses to do. We might look at those. There's a number of other moral sort of backgrounds that um, probably a little theoretical for this uh, to go into before talking really about strict medical ethics. But traditionally, at the research angle, the methodology angle, we start with... I'm happy to go know, there, by the way. If your brain is taking you there. This is a fascinating my, stuff. My me. brain tries to avoid talking about relativism and egoism as much as okay. possible. I'm teaching an ethics class in a couple hours today, so we won't go there. Procrastinate on that a little. Let's go back to this, this yeah. cornerstone of yeah. medical ethics. So the cornerstone tends to be looking at these sort of classical and contemporary approaches. So we get a little bit of some idea about how individuals determine the moral valuation of a concept, a procedure, an action, anything of the sort. And these will, of course, manifest in various areas in the practice of medicine. And they will try and apply these. Many in the beginning will try and apply these to particular procedures, see if there is something that fits fairly well. If so, how does it work? How would it, uh, how would it factor into practice? What could be some possible advantages to taking a consequence-based approach to healthcare distribution, for example. Okay, so let's, let, let's see if we can talk about you, you. One of the things you mentioned is you served on the Ethical Advisory Committee for a hospital. What does that do? The ethical and that, so how do you how do you take this approach that you're you're outlining and put it into practice? So typically, what will happen within the slightly more narrow scope, for example, of a medical so we'll say a ethics committee meeting versus sort of the more particular morbidity and mortality sort of judgment conferences, uh, a an ethics committee will typically be looking at a particular issue. They will not be looking at some sort of grand. This is how we they they won't be meeting to say well, we're going to decide the hospital's policy on euthanasia this week. They won't be doing that. They'll probably be looking at a particular issue, a particular case, something of the mm -hmm. sort. And they will begin in oftentimes a similar way. They will look at sort of a, a maybe a cost-benefit, but also from the sense of existing legal framework, existing uh, hospital policy framework, and they will try and see how a particular decision or policy going forward will line up with moral framework. Sometimes this will have to do with the moral framework of the hospital's mission. Sometimes this will have to do with the moral framework of particular patient concerns uh, in the past and going forward. And there will be an attempt to sort of reconcile a number of competing forces. So if somebody was going to ask, you know, and I'm sure you heard this, oh, you're getting a PhD in philosophy. What are you going to do with that? This is one of the things that one could professionally do with a, with a doctorate in ethics is be involved in the healthcare industry guiding organizations, helping them make informed decisions, look at consequences, fitting things into sort of a, uh, a context for society. What are you going to do with a doctorate in philosophy is all about the tone of voice. 
Now, we are very used to hearing it with the, what are you going to do with that, mm -hmm. as a sort of a tone. Really, in all honesty, if one is going to pursue philosophy to a, a higher degree, to a terminal degree, uh, something of a PhD, really one ought to phrase the tone a little differently to, oh, there's a large number of options. What are you going to do with <laughs> that? Well there's, said. <laughs> uh, there's a, there's a, in this case, we're talking about medical ethics, huh. but there are a host of, a host of avenues if one's willing to endure the the many Herculean labors that go into getting and a so degree in philosophy. And so ethics is something, or ethics panels, is something that hospitals certainly have. I think they're required to have they them. They are required to have many. Okay, and um, this is the kind of thing that if somebody is in the hospital setting, are there ways that a patient could tap into the ethics professionals? The ethics professionals, yes. So it is possible. Now, I will say up front, it is largely contingent on the hospital structure. So typically the way that individuals will do this, and it is admittedly a bit of a gamble, is through some form of hospital's patient advocacy. Mm -hmm. Usually this is the entryway step to getting involved with some sort of discussion, particularly with regards to patients' rights and patients' but procedures. That, that's certainly yeah. what, you're, what you're echoing is certainly my experience yeah. um, being sort of sometimes the responsible party for people. Yes. I meet, meet a social worker or a genetic counselor, and yeah. that creates a conversation yes. that is sometimes led to yes. now. So. Now, admittedly, a lot of research right now, we are investigating, uh, we meaning the medical ethics community at large, mm -hmm. myself, maybe not, uh, to an extent perhaps, as we may see, but a lot of the discussion now has to do with necessarily the, the role of advocacy, whether or not maybe the individual should have a little bit more autonomy in the discussion of medical ethics, whether the, uh, an, an intermediary is necessarily the best approach, particularly if there is a hospital with a very specific designated mission, this may interfere not only with the hospital's necessary role in sort of adhering to the advocacy, but necessarily who they have as an advocate. Mm, it's interesting. Yes, may cause some moral ethical conflict. And so the, so the job of the medical ethicist then, is, is it to tell people what to do? Is it to tell uh, corporations or physicians or nurses what to do or... What is the role? So the role of a medical ethicist, I would love to stand up here and put us out as these champions. Like, oh, we sit there and we are the philosopher kings who make the rules and we pass them on from on high and the doctors scramble to adhere to every single one and we're the, you know, superheroes of medicine. Uh, typically what the medical ethicist's role is depending on the structure, depending on what we're talking about, depending on the issue in question. Traditionally, medical ethicists within a specific hospital are almost advisory roles that will be familiar not only with moral, different moral approaches across communities, across the hospital's location, across the hospital's mission. They will also be familiar with a number of sort of broader moral frameworks that will advise, you know, going forward, this is something that we need to take into account. This might be something that you should consider doing. They don't necessarily have full-on enforcement but they have an infinite amount of I told you so ammunition <laughs> um, they, to guide. They will provide a lot of suggestions to guide policy in the academic setting, uh, which is not necessarily tied to a specific institution or medical establishment. A medical ethicist will probably use pre-existing research interdisciplinary, not only in philosophy, but across biology, neurobiology, neuroscience, uh, social science, hard and soft science mm -hmm. findings to put together 
persuasive arguments for particular policies, particular approaches, etc. And then they will try and have these sort of uh, disseminated across various academic and professional areas with the intent being for these to sort of take root and be frameworks going forward. For so the idea of, a, of the ethicist in the medical setting is somebody to advise, give other ways of looking at things, because often in healthcare people have to make decisions. Yes. And often this, the, the answer to decision is not black or white. I mean, Very whether to rare. treat or not to treat. Um, and that has a lot of health consequences. There's financial, yes. there's insurance. Yes. And those are the kinds of decisions that people are faced with like all the time. And those are practical considerations yes. that have moral roots with within them. So you can imagine how much it is when you dig under the surface of even just sort of the weighty and important but surface level considerations of how am I going to pay for this? You have to look at even the greater moral considerations mm -hmm. that come about as anyone who has had to, I hope, enjoy, but more realistically, probably suffer through the final medical ethics Stuff yeah. that well, I, I, I remember when know. the Affordable Care Act was being um, discussed and debated, one of the original proposals was, you know, on one side, they wanted to make evidence-based decision-making for the patients. On the other side of the argument, there were people who were saying there were going to be death squads, right? And, that, and that's a little bit, was there a position for medical ethicists in, in that? Overall, now, this actually moved rather quickly for medical ethics in the academic setting because, as we, anyone who's familiar with academia will know, academia does not move particularly quickly when mm -hmm. it comes to research findings and publication. It's a little glacial sometimes. Uh, so, a lot of the work came out just by the time the research was, there was sufficient data for research, sufficient sort of perspectives and analysis done. Much of it came out after the fact, but overall, a lot of the argument at that time the conclusion was that a lot of the death panel stuff was built on sort of unsound and unfounded rationales that really didn't uh, apply to any sort of framework that individuals could really find. Yeah, so it wasn't a framework. It became a political issue. It, it became, And we know yeah. a lot of political things are, are without foundational. It, it came, it came about, yeah well, well, yeah, it came about as something that was just not necessarily given the relevant support to build a coherent argument, whether there was or not it was not given. So we need to take a, a, a quick break. I'm going to ask you questions about your own research coming up. So we'll be right back with more healthcare talk after these brief underwriting announcements. You're listening to Health 411 on 107.7 The Bronx and 107.7 TheBronx.com. From healthcare to the environment around us and everything in between, Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. Dr. Jonathan Carp, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences, is here expanding your knowledge and perspective. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com, live from the Killarney's Public House Studios. You're listening to Health 411. I'm Dr. Jonathan Karp, and I am in the studio today with Marius Pascal, a medical ethicist. And Dr. Pascal, can you tell us a little bit about your research um, in the field of medical ethics? And I'm just to point you, um, looking you up a little bit, um, I think it's fair to say you have an attraction for horror. That would be the case. And yes. so can you tell us a little bit um, 
um, in more detail what that means and how you came to research this area and how does it apply to medicine and medical ethics? So it will be a slight lead into medicine because honestly, while I have always been very interested in medical ethics and I have uh, taught medical ethics, I've focused, I've studied a lot, the research was not originally medical ethics by virtue of circumstance. So I was immediately getting out of Rider University. As soon as I got my bachelor's, I was given a scholarship for a full, you know, basically a full scholarship doctoral pursuit at mm -hmm. SUNY Albany. It, the the interest that they had actually came from my work in medical ethics between the internship, some, some undergraduate term work, some conference work. And I arrived there to begin studying medical ethics, and the medical ethicist who was on their staff, their tenured medical ethicist, announced her retirement three months after I started my work oh, there. Wow. And by the time she would be phasing herself out, she couldn't be a dissertation supervisor. Mm -hmm. So I was a little you bit- lost your PI. I lost uh, just, a, just a tad, just a little bit. So what had wound up happening, uh, I, I wound up continuing to work in the field. I've always wanted to be interested in applied ethics at large. I wound up doing some work, uh, taking a course with a, a known moral psychologist, Dr. Jason DeCruz, who's up at SUNY Albany, doing some very interesting work with the psychology and ethics of promising, which probably also has a lot of medical ethics uh, <laughs> contract-based application as well. And one of the things that he taught us, uh, one of the things we covered in a graduate seminar at the time, was actually an area in the philosophy of art called the philosophy of horror. Why does horror attract? What is it about fear that can be enjoyable in relevant circumstances? Mm -hmm. uh, this to me was very interesting. Uh, I have you always were fascinated with the fascination. I was fascinated of with the fascination. I had a second-level fascination with horror. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, so a lot of the work at the time to me was uh, was just doing some research into the philosophy of horror. This is typically taken in an aesthetic realm, uh, the world of art and philosophy, but. Uh, after completing a lot of doctoral work, uh, a lot of what I have been trying to do with some measured success with some recent publications and ideally some forthcoming publications, uh, the research has actually taken it outside of the artistic realm, as I feel like this is kind of a unnecessarily choking off a lot of the potential for studying interest in fear, focus on fear. Mm. And a lot of what I have done is actually started to broaden this into discussions of moral psychology, philosophical mm. psychology, to research the moral status of morbid fascination. Not necessarily just as it relates to art, but fascination with death, dying, and intermittent states of disease, pain, right. suffering, etc. And that certainly relates to health yes. and healthcare. Yes. And, I, and I would like to just add to that, there's a lot of um, technological advancements in health and healthcare. Yes. Everything from genetic testing to cancer screening yes. to different kinds of surgeries and prosthetics and artificial intelligence. And all yeah. these sort of things, in a sense, scare people. Yeah. I mean, and on one level, they create great science fiction movies, but on <laughs> On, on a more practical level, those sort of things people are scared of, mm. and they don't know how to deal with them. And the technology, in many cases, not to put words in your mouth, has probably outpaced people's ability to understand it and frame it and un, like, conceptualize and sort of the ethical and philosophical well, in terms of In terms of the ethical as it applies to advancing medical technologies mm. and procedures, be they focused on death or death mm. prediction or sort of actuarial death analysis or anything beyond that, even outside of death, I say that quite a bit today, 
the question of whether ethics can keep pace with technology and advancements is an extraordinarily crucial area and arguably a significant downside to sort of the dismissal of applied ethics and philosophy that we see in a lot of the contemporary sort of analytic work. What do you, what do you mean by that? That medical ethics is oftentimes brought in after the fact or not necessarily given an abundant amount of teaching background. Uh, there aren't really a lot of medical ethics. Medical ethics is oftentimes sort of a secondary program that gets thrown in in the medical oh, education. Oh, so using sort of a post hoc analysis. It is decidedly a post hoc analysis, mm-hmm. if even that. Mm-hmm. And this causes an issue because not only in the sort of just application, but it does downplay the importance and means that medical ethics, while we'll always have a hard time keeping pace with technology, is especially oftentimes playing catch up because really there could be a great deal of focus going into not only the training of medical students, Mm -hmm. but also the professional application really does require a greater focus than it tends to get in academia and otherwise. So certainly a worthwhile thing to go, but I I didn't mean to distract you. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to your sort of attraction to, you know, death, dismemberment, and the trying to understand why people are fascinated with this. (laughs) And 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 we're we're, we're agreeing that it is related to health and healthcare. Yes, yes. But can you tell us a little bit more about what your research is is doing. I like to say death and dying more than I like to say dismemberment. <laughs> I'm, I'm always a little concerned about what that means in terms of how people might get an image for what I do. Well, it's not quite being dead, but no, surviving. That is very true. It is an intermittent state, yeah. theoretically, depending on what is dismembered. That is true. That's and right. now I'm talking about it. <laughs> so the question really is, uh, in terms of in terms of my focal point, I'm very curious about not only the attraction, but more the moral question, because as we'll find, individuals have differing perceptions on exactly what morbid fascination is. Mm -hmm. And we encounter what I'd consider sort of a semantic prejudice problem, a linguistic, a problem of language where individuals have not necessarily had Uh, the same page idea of what morbid fascination is, and it will lead them periodically to talk about different things when they talk about what attitudes towards death are. Some might hear fascination and think obsessive fixation on dismemberment, Mm -hmm. which is not necessarily the same thing as sort of, you know, your baseline morbid fascination. So I'm very interested in not only understanding how we talk about it, but the application of morbid fascination to the way we perceive relevant areas, areas that have to do with death, that have to do with illness and suffering. Uh, Now, this is writ large. I I recently published a a work in Springer's Journal of Value Inquiry that actually, Mm. not just in terms of application to medicine, but sets at large some determining factors, uh, three factors of determination that will allow one to sort of look at manifestations of morbid fascination and say, oh, this is not morbid, this is not a morbid fascination that causes sort of a moral red flag, but when certain categories start to... Start so what, what what is that as it goes from, you know, a, I would say healthy, healthy morbid fascination to pathological or intellectually dangerous morbid so fascination? I'm, I'm actually quite happy you say healthy morbid fascination because contrary to again sort of the belief that some may have there are healthy both in terms of sort of result-based analysis and psychological mm-hmm. moral psychology based on there are actually healthy manifestations particularly when one considers the lack of health that accompanies an absence of morbid fascination which has been demonstrated numerous times to be 
uh, mental health, moral health, very problematic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the factors that I have touched on briefly, there's uh, two articles coming out in, I think, the next couple months to a year that will expand on this a little more, including some medicine-relevant application, mm-hmm. is does the manifestation cause a particular degree of fixation? So as you said right there, sort of a, a, a all-encompassing creating a boundary line of when it becomes a particular amount of focus. Uh, The second one being, what is the medium that is engendering fascination? Is it a fictional medium? Is it an informative medium? Is it something? So the idea being, is it a book? Is it the internet? Is it a movie? And what what is it that's going on in question? Is this fictional? Is this... You know, uh, a, a reality directed fixation is this a reality directed manifestation? And the other, uh, the other third sort of factor question is, does it interfere with maintenance of empathy? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. That's a, that would be certainly a lo- absence of that would be a sign of pathology or a moral cliff yes, kind of yes. Thing. And there are you can you can certainly actually the, the research I'm doing right now is really trying to seek to establish a more credible philosophical framework for saying contrary to popular belief you can they are not mutually excu- exclusive you can have maintenance of both. Uh, it's sort of a mistaken generalization that people think they can't coexist. They can, in fact, actually help each other very much. Yeah, it's interesting just to give it some perspective. Um, just to, and you mentioned how a lot of this started with art for you, understanding art. And what popped into my head was, you know, uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which here is a woman who was fascinated um, with electricity and the idea yes. that you know a, a you know an electrical shock can make a dead frog jump and move and, and was it bringing it back to life yeah. or was it just making it move what was and she applied that sort of like that in a sense a morbid fascination to a great literary work and now there's movies there's books that's it's sort of an well, institutional thing it's, 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 it's interesting it's, you should mention that it's uh, that the research started with an interest in art mm-hmm. actually and this may tie very well in going forward a, a little bit perhaps it's not so much I mean I've always been someone who's very inclined to art be it horror or otherwise I'm mm-hmm. I'm always an aesthetically inclined person I find it fascinating but in fact the issue is not so much that it started with my need to understand morbid art and then apply it to broader prescriptions mm-hmm. outside of art it's that in analytic philosophy this is the only area where morbid fascination was being explored was in its relation <laughs> to art and I found this to be necessarily problematic and I'll admit it's been a bit of an uphill battle trying to publish things it's only recently you're, that you're creating there, yeah let's let's let, let's go there yeah. let's but let's take yeah. a break right now because we're running short on time we'll be right back with more healthcare talk after these brief underwriting announcements you're listening to health 411 on 1077 the Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. A dose of knowledge a day keeps a doctor away. Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. And back with your daily dosage is Dr. Jonathan Carr, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences. Oh, 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com, live from the Killarney's Public House Studios. You're listening to Health 411. I'm Dr. Jonathan Karp here in the studio with Dr. Marius Pascal, and we are talking about medical ethics and fascinations with horror and the connection between understanding the world, art, and at the end of the last segment, you were, you were on a roll, and unfortunately, I had to cut you off. For the so uh, please continue on and tell 
tell us more. That's the nature of philosophy, yeah. people. When we finally get someone who expresses an interest in philosophy, we tend to go <laughs> a little goes overboard. Goes goes. We keep going. It gets yeah. a little overboard. Yes. Uh, so it's basically saying that it's been restricted. Morbid fascination, mm-hmm. the analysis of, has really been dis- uh, fixated on art. Okay. But an important aspect that people tend to ignore uh, or until recently really start looking at, uh, to some part, some of what I've been doing, some of the earliest publications. Well, I, I, I would actually yeah. argue, too, is that one of the reasons the, the art of horror and things like that is because, because people are interested in it. Yes. You know, and it's, you know, you see... Um, there's all different kinds of art, but there's art of murder. There's art of yes. dismemberment. There's art of, you know, psychopathology. And some of that is very good art. And it's 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 yeah. pictures. It's literature. There's movies. And a good part of movies have to do with, you know, medical-related things. And it's sort of the horror. And I'm, I'm just going to throw this out there because there's a lot of examples. It's one of the reasons that people are fascinated with these issues do people feel a need to be in control and when things get out of control there's sort of this morbid fascination it's certainly a possible proposal as to yeah, one of the yeah. things that can engender morbid fascination yes but so i'm happy you mentioned that there's sort of a medical angle mm-hmm. to a lot of the things that people fixate on and sort of derive fear from yeah. so a lot of the work that has been done sort of at least by me if not hopefully by some other people going forward is to actually try and take some questions about moral boundary lines for morbid fascination and look at the way it influences individual approaches to particular areas that partake of morbidity, namely medicine. Well, and and then the areas we're talking about with morbidity, we we could be talking about abortion, we could be talking about genetic testing, we could be talking about artificial intelligence. Right to um, right right to death with dignity. Right to to die or being able to choose. Like in some countries, people can choose when their time is up and some places you can't, like yeah. the United States. Um, and those, these are all things that are related to yes. this area on a very practical yes. level, even though you're talking a little bit bigger. Well, so it's interesting. So it actually, these are, these are very good specific ones, but there are even more base level specifics mm-hmm. that people don't tend to think about. One's attitudes towards morbidity, be it due to their exposure, be it due to their sort of sense of moral propriety associated with morbidity, not only affects particular large-scale issues like the ones mentioned here. It also affects key day-to-day issues, including trust in physicians, interaction with physicians, Mm -hmm. expectations for the medical industry, the design of one's living will and advanced directives. These are all important areas that were more sort of not, I want to say maybe not day-to-day, but are more sort of on the street, street level questions of the way the medical industry and those who both practice it and interact with it And these are not esoteric things. These are all things that we all have to deal with. These are things that we, if you can go a long time without dealing with it, you're an extraordinarily fortunate (laughs) person, but very few individuals sadly are so fortunate. Mm -hmm. And it's very very helpful to have it. So, So as part of your thinking is like, why is this fascination happening? Is it... Is it an intellectual thing? Is it a biological thing? Why does this happen to people? Why are or is individuals, it fear? Is it coming back to fear? Why are individuals fascinated mm-hmm. with morbidity or sort of morbid occurrences? <laughs> yeah, I'm just yes. uh, there are a number of plausible explanations, mm-hmm. but I would I would actually make the argument that uh, it uh, it incorporates a number of the sort of general proposals that were brought up right here. Uh, it it is I think that there is sort of a, a perhaps neurobiological fixation on things that are 
frightening things that are perhaps mysterious, not particularly possible to explain. It causes fear, but fear is something that individuals find interesting. It is something that individuals want to investigate. Mm. Morbid fascination exists because fear is a source. Yeah, and of fear curiosity. doesn't mean it's, I'm scared. I'm running away. Fear, no. you know, fear might be I am attracted to that. I want to. It's like going slow as you're driving by the car accident to yes. see, you know, because you want to see the bodies. I mean, that's and and therein we have something that may violate one of the three categories of morbid fascination mm -hmm. that might start to cause a, a, a morally problematic manifestation. Mm -hmm. And so, g coming back to a little bit healthcare or mm -hmm. related kinds of things, how do these um, this this fascination, which is sort of a, a general humanistic kind of thing, um, in the healthcare setting, how would an deal with some of the issues in healthcare, like barriers to healthcare. You know, the, like one size fit all fits all is probably not the case in these decision making. So there's barriers to healthcare. There's different people coming from different religions, different um, ethnic backgrounds, different socioeconomic things. How does this? How do these realities affect an ethical approach or an ethical appraisal of, um, in medicine? Well, what these need to do, and one of the reasons that I would argue this research should receive greater prominence, is we don't have a lot of application background right now because we don't have a lot of research into this particular area. Individuals are very fixated on legal and procedural concerns with a lot of medical ethics, mm -hmm. but individuals don't really spend a lot of time looking at some of the concerns that have been brought up here. So this is actually an area where what should one do? We really have sort of only a very general prescription right now. Now, I think that what it should be doing, at least uh, to speak on sort of my own research, my mm -hmm. own sort of just interest in where this could go at the moment, I think it needs to be done to inform the way doctors and individuals in the medical industry, the medical decision makers, interact with the diversity of perspectives on morbidity. I think that we need to do more research into looking at how specifically this is going to affect not only the way patients interact with sort of their approach to medicine, but the way doctors from divergent backgrounds might need exactly. to approach patients. It's a, it's a conversation yeah. at the business level. It's a conversation between a patient It's a, it's a conversation a, at the procedural level, too. All, it's all a these very important procedural So there's a lot of levels of ethical decision-making. You know, I guess it, the, the biggest thing is to treat or not to treat and then how to treat. Yeah. And these particularly depending on, I would say, maybe very obviously in some of the bigger concerns, but particularly at even even ground level concerns. Mm -hmm. This is something that's going to affect, it's this sort of study is going to affect, you know, for example, a lot of the, the three-factor work that just got published by me, a lot, of the, a lot of the research that I'd like to do, I'm trying to continue, is looking at how this would affect the way individuals approach morbid fascination with regards not only to physical health, but mental health mm -hmm. as well, because this can be not necessarily a signatory of certain problems, but also a red well, flag. That, that's a, well, it's, it's an important thing because part of the ethics in healthcare is how do you make, how does somebody who's compromised, like mentally or psychologically, can they make in, informed decisions? Can they have informed consent um, if they might not really understand? Is what's it informed happening? consent? And furthermore, is it voluntary? 
if an individual necessarily is is faced with these sorts of control dilemmas? Is it a voluntary well, mission as that, well? That, that's, yeah. a, that's a very real thing because how many times have you had to have a medical procedure and the doctor just sticks a piece of paper in front of you and says, sign it? Like, how many people really read it and understand it well, and understand the details so of what's happening? So, interestingly enough, now, while I probably shouldn't admit this as the medical ethics professor person here, but as someone who doesn't always have all the technical understanding of the thing mm-hmm. that they have me to sign, I'm someone who's very fascinated with sort of maybe you say partakes in the morbidity angle, but I've encountered some situations where medical professionals seem almost unable to particularly uh, competently or maybe or maybe adequately adequately engage with that type of fascination, that sort of perspective. And going, well, now I'm very interested to know what will happen. I would like to really retain more information and its sort of impact on the morbidity and mortality angle. Some of some do not necessarily have the awareness of how to handle that sort of approach. And this is an area where you might want to say maybe, hopefully, it's not a morally problematic No, but, but, I, but I, 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 I would make the case that it could be it's something lacking in the educational system of, of part of the training. Because so much of that kind of training in the medical world becomes practical, skill based. Mm-hmm. It, there's not a problem, I mean, probably more so than 25 years ago, but probably not adequately mm-hmm. trained in how to deal with the moral and ethical sides of some of the decisions that people have to make. Absolutely. And this, again, stems from a lot of the training angle, this mm-hmm. medical ethics mm-hmm. education. Uh, many, many schools, many uh, many institutions are trying to incorporate this, but it is something that since it gets sort of uh, bookended or sort of put under the philosophy umbrella, sometimes it gets sort of thrown aside because there tends to be an idea that the interaction of philosophical reasoning, critical mm-hmm. thinking, these skills tend to not necessarily be seen. They seem as sort of ancillary to the broader liberal arts discussion, but are you treated as more of sort of one thing or an elective? They're not necessarily given the career-specific <laughs> yeah, well, application yeah. that we can find, particularly if you give sort of a broad access to saying, well, if you're interested in medicine, you're doing medical work, you probably want to take a course in ethical reasoning. You probably also want to do something that's specific in medical ethics. Uh, mm-hmm. at, at Ryder University, in fact, as a medical ethics person, I, I have never had a medical ethics course in my year and a half, two years here that hasn't been maxed out to capacity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, a, no, absolutely. And they're, they're very, very important things because um, I think it's fair to say with knowledge comes power and the ability to make with knowledge comes the ability to make decisions, make informed decisions. Um, informed consent is like a technical word for it. And that's a, a big part of, of what the ethics is. It's, it's, it's knowledge. It's, it's putting things in a framework and not being very myopic. If I, if I sort of captured it, it's the uh, opposite of myopic. There you go. <laughs> um, this is a great conversation, but unfortunately we're running out of time. This is 1077 The Bronx, 107 7thebronc.com. We are live from the Killarney's Public House Studios. Thank you to listening to Health 411. This program is part of the Ryder University Health Studies Institute's efforts to bring people together to address issues associated with all aspects of healthcare. I hope today's program has helped inform you about medical ethics and approach to medical ethical decision making. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Marius Pascal. Thank you so much. I would like to thank you for giving me the opportunity to be on. It's been my pleasure. This has been a great show. If you have questions and or comments about this program or the Health Studies Institute at Ryder University, please email us at hsi at rider.edu. 
Thank you for taking the time to listen to your health with Health 411. Dr. Jonathan Karp is here from Roddy University's Health Studies Institute every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information about the Health Studies Institute's programs, call 609-896-5093. That's 609-896-5093. Or find their webpage on rider.edu under Academics and Academic Programs. Be sure to tune in every week to expand your knowledge and perspective. And don't forget to stay healthy.